0: Tonight's scripture reading is from Genesis, chapters 7 and 8. The flood remained on the earth for 40 days. The waters rose, lifted the ark, and it rode high above the earth. The waters rose and spread out over the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the waters. The waters rose even higher over the earth. They covered all the highest mountains under the sky. The waters rose 23 feet high, covering the mountains. Every creature took its last breath. The things crawling on the ground, birds, livestock, wild animals, everything swarming on the ground and every human being. Everything on dry land with life's breath in its nostrils died. God wiped away every living thing that was on the fertile land, from human beings to livestock to crawling things to birds in the sky. They were wiped off the earth. Only Noah and those with him in the ark were left. The waters rose over the earth for 150 days. God remembered Noah, all those alive and all the animals with him in the ark. God sent a wind over the earth so that the waters receded. The springs of the deep deep sea and the skies closed up. The skies held back the rain. The waters receded gradually from the earth. After 150 days, the waters decreased. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day, the ark came to rest on the Ararat Mountains. The waters decreased gradually until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the mountain peaks appeared. After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. He sent out a raven, and it flew back and forth until the waters over the entire earth had dried up. Then he sent out a dove to see if the waters on all of the fertile land had subsided. But the dove found no place to set its foot. It returned to him in the ark since water still covered the entire earth. Noah stretched out his hand, took it, and brought it back into the ark. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out from the ark again. The dove came back to him in the evening, grasping a torn olive leaf in its beak. Then Noah knew that the waters were subsiding from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove, but it didn't come back to him again. The word of the Lord.
1: It was a world without hope, a world with no rain and no crops, dominated by warlords and their barbarian hordes. In this cruel world, Noah was a good man, a seasoned fighter, a mage, and a healer, but he only wanted peace for him and his family. Yet every night, Noah was beset by visions of an endless flood, symbolizing the destruction of all life. Gradually, he began to understand the message sent to him by the Creator. He had to, he had decided to punish men and kill them all at last, until the last. But he gave Noah one last chance to preserve life on Earth. Don't you hate when you're like researching and writing about a Bible story, and then Russell Crowe makes a movie about it? I know. Really, like Noah, you've heard about it, right? It's this epic film uh, by Darren Aronofsky starring Russell Crowe as Noah. It's coming out just next week. It's coming out next week. Of course, I haven't seen it, but um, yeah, it has caused a little bit of controversy. I don't know if you've heard about the controversy, Um, it has already been banned in some Arab countries, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain. Even uh, hipster Pope Francis invited Russell Crowe and the director to the Vatican to bless the film, but then later canceled the meeting. The controversy for some Muslims is um, with the depiction of the story of the prophet. But Aronofsky saw that come, and he said, To be frank, he told the Telegraph, given that it is a tenet of the Muslim religion, that you can't make stories or render images of the prophet, it was not unexpected that some Islamic nations would ban the film. The outrage among some Christians is that the film doesn't follow exactly what the Bible really says. The national religious broadcasters threatened to boycott the film, and in Les Paramount, the film's distributor issued a disclaimer that the movie isn't a literal interpretation of the Genesis story. I don't know which seems crazier to me, that the national religious broadcasters are the ones that know what the Bible actually really says, or that they think masses of people will see the film and assume the two-hour epic is what the Bible really says. And why does this worry them? I don't understand. Are they concerned that this misinterpreted Understanding will unravel the faith of these unsuspecting moviegoers? Or are they defending something, the Bible? Or defending the truth, or maybe even defending God? Paramount agreed and put the disclaimer on, avoiding the boycott and presuming, pres- preserving, for now, what the Bible really says from corruption. The website standupfortruth.com said that even the trailer makes it obvious that the producers took many liberties playing fast and loose with the biblical text. I always thought that was a good thing. (laughs) In addition to veering from the literal words of the Bible story, some Christians are incensed at the direction in which the story veers. Noah is depicted as an environmentalist. I know, that's right, that's right. Conservative Christian film critic writer, and writer Brian Godawa exposed it all in a detailed post called Darren Aronofsky, environmentalist wacko. He writes, in this oppressive world, Noah and his family seem to avoid the crowds and live off the land. Noah is a kind of rural shaman and vegan happy vegan hippie he 's like a gatherer of herbs. if you can believe that Noah explains that his family studies the world, healing it when it can, like some kind of environmentalist scientist. What could be worse, but he also mysteriously has the fighting skills of an ancient Near Eastern ninja. <laughs> Noah maintains an animal hospital, of all things, to take care of wounded animals and those that survived the evil poachers. But how could there be poachers if there were no game reg- regulations? I'm not sure. But... All as I know is Noah ends up looking more like the Mother Teresa of animals than a prophet of the truth. I think maybe God would know what he's talking about when it comes to Wacko. He is the author of the biblical fantasy series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, Noah, Primeval, in which this uh, eight-book series, pits the seed of Eve against the seed of the serpent, and Noah battles the giant demonic Nephilim, and I am assuming also eats meat and hates the damn environment. (laughs) I have not seen the movie, but the trailer does make it seem epic, like super epic. In one heart-pounding scene, a warlord has come to seize the ark from Russell Crowe Noah. And Russell Crowe Noah says, you can have the ark when you can take it from me. I think the literal biblical verse says, you can have my ark when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. (laughs) Or wait a minute, that's the Charlton Heston version, sorry. Kathleen Parker in a review for the Washington Post says that if you like Braveheart, Gladiator, or the Titanic, you will love Noah. Well, I did like those movies. And, you know, I don't really mind if Russell Crowe and Darren Aronofsky are getting in on the Noah story. I mean, I agree with Eugene Peterson, the biblical scholar who says that the world needs more stories, not less. means more people going out there and telling more stories, writing more stories. Of course, the rabbis have always known this, and they have been riffing on the Noah story since they first heard it. There are all kinds of stories in the Midrash, the writings of the ancient rabbis. I like the ones about Noah and the animals. Of course, who doesn't like the ones about Noah and the animals, right? That's why this is such a popular children's story, the animals. Um, And that has to be the only reason that this is a popular children's story, because, you know, the whole thing about God killing every living thing and regretting that he ever created human life in the first place The animals are nice. And as I've mentioned, I think, in last week's sermon, if you happen to catch it, God was so mad because humans had spread out over all the earth and spread with them evil, which may or may not have some roots in the people and the angels hooking up and giving birth to the Nephilim, half human, half giant, angel giants, who the text literally says are the heroes of old and the men. Of renown. I might have mentioned that last week. Anyway, God has specifically instructed the people to be fruitful and multiply and spread out all over the earth, but because of all the wickedness in their hearts and it being the only one thing they wanted to do, evil, things got out of hand quickly, quickly, very quickly, and God decided that's it. He needed to scrap the whole experiment, this creation thing, and he had to start over. So this flood story is God's do-over, God's redo, God's re-creation. But the second time, he's not starting from scratch. God is bringing it all the way back, all the way to where the whole earth is formless and void, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters. Yes, the waters. He's hitting rewind and going right back to where the waters swallow up everything. It's just water. And he's starting, but he is not starting from scratch, like I said. He's keeping a starter set of the people he made and all the animals and the birds and the creeping things that crawl on the earth. So um, the rabbis say that as he's preparing for this trip, Noah has to not only gather up this whole starter set of all the animals and birds and all the things that creep on the earth, Noah also has to learn what they eat, what every one of them eat, so he could figure out what he needs to bring for food. So in one story um, that the rabbis tell, this is way after, after the flood happens, and Abraham is talking to one of Noah's sons, Shem. And Abraham's just wanting to, you know... Hear what it was like. Life was like back in the flood days on that ark. And he says, "Was it hard?" Oh, Shem says, "Oh, you can't even believe how hard it is. How hard it was. I mean, we were trying to figure out all the time, like, what are these things going to eat? Right? Oh, and there was one time, my dad brought the wrong thing to a lion, and it bit him in the leg. There was another time, my dad was sitting there, and he was uh, peeling a pomegranate, cutting it up, and he looked over in the corner, in the dark." And he saw a chameleon, right up there in the rafters of the ark. And he said to the chameleon, "Why don't you come down here? Let me get you something to eat." And the chameleon said, "No, no, don't worry about me. You just—you're very, very busy." So Noah, being very busy and having other people to feed, um, decided that he but to go. He dropped a well, piece of the pomegranate on the ground, and it rotted, and worm crawled out of it. The chameleon quickly ran over and ate the worm. So Noah realized chameleons eat worms. I mean, that's what things were like back then. So Noah is in this boat. It's raining 150 days or 40 days or a number of years. I don't know if you noticed when Phyllis read the story, there's a lot of different numbers in there, but it's a long time. And he's in there And Noah has to feed certain animals at certain times. One eats at the third hour of the day. One eats at the ninth. He is spending a lot of time feeding all these animals. He doesn't get any sleep at all. Noah has to pay attention, make sure they're healthy. And also, um, he's got to clean up. I mean, if you're feeding a lot of animals, there's going to be a lot of poop. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, how things work. Right? The ancient rabbis tell us that everybody poops, right? I mean, everybody. Giraffes, elephants, donkeys, deer, antelope, anteaters, hippopotami, pigeons, hyenas. They all poop. A lot of poop. He's got to clean it up. Now, the rabbis say that this feeding, minding the animals, taking care of them, cleaning up after them, that Noah came to know all the animals very well, intimately, intimately. And that somehow that act of taking care of them changed Noah, changed him. It's the the nurturing of the animals and the birds and all the creeping things that creep transformed Noah from the kind of human that was born to multiply and to spread out all over the earth and to have dominion over everything into a careful, caring kind of human one that took the time to learn about all of creation, to get to know creation. Noah's time on the ark recreated him after that 150-day gestation period in the womb of that was that ark. He is born out not as a dominator as before, not as a subduer of creation. He is reborn as a nurturer of creation, Maybe kind of like a vegan, hippie, environmental scientist, herb gatherer. Do you think it's possible that the Hollywood liberals somehow got to the ancient rabbis? There's another story from the rabbis. They say that after the ark was all sealed up, um, and the waters came and lifted up the ark, that one of the Nephilim, yes, the Nephilim, the half-human, half-angel, heroes of old, men of renown, giants, was treading water. And I'm assuming that because he was part-angel, part-human, hero of old, man of renown, giant, that he was like a lot stronger than other regular people. So he could tread water. And he saw the Ark, This giant, this Nephilim, and he swims over to the ark and he grabs onto the side of the plank and holds on. And all through the storms and through the rain and thrashing about, this giant holds on to the side. And he's being battered and he's grunting and gasping and calling out. And Noah hears him. This giant out there grasping onto the side. And so he cuts a little hole in the side of the ark and he makes a door there. And he looks out and he sees that giant hanging on. And he gets him something to eat. And every day for the rest of the time, after Noah fed all the other animals and cleaned up everything, he took some food down and opened that little door and fed that giant Nephilim clinging to the side of the ark. And so, when the ark comes to rest and the water dries up, the Nephilim drops off the side of the ark and runs off into the distance. Now, why does Noah feed the Nephilim? It seems like if God would have wanted to save these Nephilim giant God would have told Noah to bring him into the ark. If God would have wanted this Nephilim giant, half-angel, half-human creature to be a part of the recreation, God would have let Noah know. So why does Noah feed the Nephilim? Or why does the rabbis even tell this story? Like, Is it to explain how wickedness re-entered? the recreated world? Or do the rabbis know, or does Noah understand that maybe there's something about the Nephilim that humanity might need in, re- in this recreated world? Something that Maybe there's something that a hero of old, a man of renown, can contribute that a nurturing, vegetarian, hippie, herb-gathering environmentalist could not. I don't know. Or is it maybe that the Nephilim were one thing that God didn't create? That people made this Nephilim without God. They brought it into the world without God's instruction. And Noah wanted to preserve that? I don't know. Maybe it was just that after feeding and learning to nurture and care for all these creatures, that Noah could not help feed Someone, something that was hungry. So what would cause this recreated Noah to go behind God's back? And really, there's no going behind God's back. God can see this giant that so angered him when we were created hanging on to the side of the ark. God could have whacked him off anytime he wanted. But it is said among the rabbis that is is when God sees Noah feeding this giant, this Nephilim, that that is when God's heart softens, and that is when God learns forgiveness. That is the first time in creation that God does not respond to wickedness with death. It's the first time that God responds with mercy.